sure most of you are familiar with the expression smoke and mirrors, an expression used to kind of describe magicians who do tricks, do illusions, and techniques and elements they use to do for their trick. Well, I want to use a mirror as a visual reminder today because I think a lot of times, you know, it's so easy to forget sermons and little triggers, little pictures, illustrations can trigger in our mind what the sermon was about. And so I want you, for the, at least for the next few days, when you look in the mirror, I want you to remember the illusion that sin gives us. Sin gives us an illusion. There's something that we never, ever see in the mirror. In fact, this is the way I want to word it. Pride doesn't show up in the mirror. Pride doesn't show up in the mirror. We just don't see our pride. It has a way of hiding from us. We have a way of making excuses that it's not pride. We don't see ourselves accurately. And then to make matters worse, usually we downplay the sin of pride. We see it as maybe a, a slight character flaw or something that's not truly that bad, whereas Scripture continually points to the fact that it is not only destructive, but it will bring you down ultimately. In fact, Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a flaw. I mean, before a fall. And it's a flaw that we often don't see about ourselves. And ultimately, it truly is. Pride is the idolatry, the worship of yourself. And so we don't think in those terms. We don't think, I'm worshiping myself. Again, we don't see pride. We don't see how that we make it all about us. And the, 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 the worst thing about pride is it completely undermines the mission that we're on for Jesus. That we should be on a mission for his glory, his honor, yet when we allow pride to come into our lives, we become entitled, we become demanding, we insist on control, we have to be right, we tend to judge others, and it takes us away from our mission of lifting Jesus up, and all of a sudden it becomes all about us. And so we're not sitting here today hearing about things like control, you say, that's me, or you know, I, I judge other people. You're thinking of somebody else that judges other people. You're not thinking about yourself being entitled because there's plenty of other people who are way more entitled than you, so you're thinking about them. And you're not thinking about demanding, being demanding. You're just thinking that it makes sense, the things that you want, right? And so we do this thing where we don't see it at all in our lives. And so God's Word, through the Holy Spirit and through our relationship within the body of Christ, can help us expose our pride. God will use these things to expose our pride. And so as we launch in today's topic in, text, in our text, where John identifies, he spots in his followers, his disciples, pride, and then lovingly he gives some lessons to them on humility, we can take this if we're willing to say, God, please spot this in my life and point it out to me in my life. Show me how that I can live more for your purposes and less being about me and more about your kingdom. So we're going to be in John chapter 3 again, and we're going to be in verses 22 through 30. John 3, 22 through 30. If you want to turn there, let's pray, and then we'll look at this passage of Scripture. Father God, I pray that right now that your people will admit to themselves and admit to you, most importantly, that Pride is a real part of their life. It's a real struggle. And it comes really naturally to live 
with pride and not have humility in our lives. And Father God, I pray you'll point out the seriousness and the extent of that sin in our lives through your word, through your truth, through the Holy Spirit working today, God, so that our lives can truly be about you and your glory and less about us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 22, pick up there. He says, after this, the apostle John writes, and this meaning, if you were here last week, that Jesus met with Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again, very familiar passage of scripture. So after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So Jesus was already in the providence of Judea, but he leaves the city of Jerusalem, and he travels out into the country, and it says that he remained there with his disciples. Interesting, if you're just reading this passage, you just fly right by this, but it's interesting in the original language, the meaning of this remain there is literally a rubbing together. That's the, the original word, the picture there. And so the idea is Jesus is literally rubbing shoulders, where we would get that concept, the rubbing shoulders with his disciples. Because Jesus' top priority was discipling his men at this point. He was preparing his men for the future of the church, the future of what God was going to do. So Jesus knew that he had to be up close with them. And that's why we constantly talk about discipleship here, and we'll talk about it a lot next week, because we impact people up close, not from a distance. And there's a certain level that you're going to get from the sermon today. But I promise you, through K-Group, and through Fight Club, you're going to have more opportunity for things to really impact you specifically in your life. And so Jesus knew that. He spent a great deal of time with his men, and he remained there with them in this country area and was baptizing. And so John is the only gospel that mentions that Jesus baptized. And actually, if you look in chapter 4, verse 2, it clarifies there that Jesus didn't actually do the baptism, but his men, his disciples, did it, and he delegated. He kind of oversaw it. And Jesus' baptism at this point was along the lines of John's, which was a baptism of repentance. But it definitely is a foreshadowing of Christian baptism, which would come later, which is the picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So Jesus and his men are out here in the wilderness baptizing. Verse 23 says John was also out there in Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, verse 23, and people were coming and being baptized. So John and Jesus were both in this same area, and they were baptizing there. Why were they both in the same area? Because he says there's much water to be baptized with there. And so the Greek word baptizo means to dip or to immerse, and so the fact that there's a lot of water there means that it was a very prime place for baptisms to take place. So that's where John and Jesus both arrived at to do this work of baptism. And then John, for clarification and kind of set up a timeline, he tells us, which is the obvious, right? John's out there baptizing. He can't be in prison, for John had not yet been put into prison. So he's given us a timeline and perspective probably because he knew the other gospel accounts at this point. And so John indicates this timeline, and he points to verse 25 that there becomes this discussion among some, one Jew in particular, verse 25. Now, the discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over P 
purification, all right? So what does that have to do with? Old Testament purification. There was a lot of different rituals, a lot of different opinions about how this purification should take place. And while we don't know the details of this conversation that was happening between John's disciples and this Jew, chances are, based upon the clues we're getting in a second, they're asking, this guy's asking, whose baptism is better? All right, we got John over here and his disciples, and they're baptizing. You got Jesus right down the river here, and he's baptizing. All right, which one's better here? And this Jew is maybe trying to stir up dissension. He's trying to create drama, and he's kind of pointing to these rival baptisms. In the red corner, you got John. In the blue corner, you got Jesus. Which one's better here? We got spiritual competition going on. And this guy, his, he's getting, probably getting clarification on purification rituals, but he wants to know which ba- baptism is better. Which one should he be going to? Which one should people be utilizing? And what we see in this situation is a truism, very obvious, you know this, that pride brings conflict, and conflict inevitably reveals pride. Whenever you see conflict, you're probably going to see pride coming to the surface. Because it's hard to identify. Again, it's hard to see pride. It's easy to see it in other people. But as you see conflict, know that oftentimes the fruit of conflict is pride. And pride uh, will bring conflict. Although, for sure, all conflict is not sinful. It's needed oftentimes to have conflict. We saw conflict with Jesus in the temple a few weeks ago. But pride often rears its ugly head during this time. And when we watch conflict happen, most of the time we'll see pride begin to surface. So let's pause here for a second and make this personal, okay? Think about your marriage. Think about your relationships. Think about at work, the people you're in conflict with. Maybe the Holy Spirit will use the situations that are coming to mind in your own life and say, where's the pride coming out in my life? What pride is revealing itself through these conflicts that I have in my life going on right now? And the pride in John's disciples begins to show through at this point through this conversation with this Jew. And this guy's bringing up these things. And all of a sudden, John's disciples, they begin to get envious. Verse 26. And they come to John and ask him. They they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the river, all right, pause there for a second, he was with you, that's Jesus and his disciples, all right, and maybe they're thinking in their minds, okay, hello, John, you baptized Jesus, and now Jesus is off doing his own ministry, what's up with that, all right, he baptized, now you baptized him, now he's baptizing, what's going on, and there's ministry competition happening here, and they said, uh, uh, Rabbi, who was, who, he was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So not only is Jesus off doing ministry, his disciples saying, Jesus is winning, all right? He's drawing in more people. He's making a bigger impact. And the disciples are questioning this. They're wondering, why is this happening? Well, the sad thing is, John had made it very clear to them already back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 35 through 37, he told them, Behold, the Lamb of God. He points to his disciples, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And literally at that point, two of the disciples that John had leave John, and they go over to Jesus and start following Jesus. 
But I'm sure that at some point, the disciples that John still has at this moment, they're hurt over the fact that, hey, people were abandoning John. John was doing such work. He was, he was so popular as we looked at chapter 1. And they expected his popularity to continue. And they had stuck it out with him, even though other people had left because they believed in John. And so more people were leaving John, and more people were being baptized by Jesus. And here they are, right in probably eye shot of one another, or at least close. And the disciples of, of John are concerned. But look how John responds to them. Verse 27, he says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John says, my ministry, what I'm doing, what we're doing together, was given to us by God himself. And God gave me a role to play. And it was a gift from God. You see, he knew the big picture. He knew clearly, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And we talked about this last week, about preaching the gospel to ourselves. If we're going to dismantle our pride, we must begin to preach the gospel to ourselves. And the gospel here that John's pointing out is the fact that we deserve nothing. Everything we have is a gift from God. And those on this side of the cross, if we don't comprehend that and live that and just preach that constantly to ourselves, we will again and again and again fall back into envious, jealous living. And we won't live for the kingdom because we will make life all about us, even though we think we're not making it about us. Because we all think that we're independent, we're strong, we're self-made when we're not. And we bought into this lie that God helps those who help themselves. And we may know, like we may say, no, that's not true, but we live as if that's true, that God helps those who help themselves. No, God helps those who cannot help themselves. Remember that. God helps those who cannot help themselves. God, if he's going to do his work through you and you're going to play the role that he's called you to play, you have to be completely dependent upon him like children who are completely dependent on their parent for all the things that they need for life. And so John makes it clear, you can't receive even one thing, not even one thing, unless it's given to you from heaven. Could that be any clearer? And so I think the first lesson to be learned from John as he's telling his disciples this truth is, humility brings contentment. Humility brings contentment. John was content in the role God had given to him. He understood that his ministry was a gift from heaven and that God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. In verse 28, he continues to clarify. He says, you yourself, you bear witness that I said, right, that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John said, I, I, I've told you this already, guys. You should get this. Jesus, he's the Christ, not me. But pride keeps us from hearing the truth. It does. Really, very practically, pride, our pride keeps us. We can hear things, but it just doesn't compute with us. People can warn us. They can say things. They can give you wisdom. 
but your pride stands in the way of hearing the truth. And that's what exactly what happened with John's disciples. John had made it clear, guys, we're ending. Like th- this show is coming to an end at some point. It's not about me. It's not about you. I've already sent off two of my disciples, gave the blessing for them to go with Jesus. But you don't understand it. You don't comprehend it. As Jesus liked to say, you don't have ears to hear the truth. And so pride keeps us from taking in the truth. But as we reflect upon the gospel, God cultivates humility and contentment in our lives. And we see that through the fruit of humility. We talked about the fruit. There's fruit of pride. Here are some of the fruit of humility. Recognize these. You may not see the pride, but you may recognize the fruit. You stop complaining as much when you're humble. Worship takes of God takes the place of entitlement. You begin to worship more than expect. And we're more open to hear the truth of God. But as we look at this passage, as I'm guilty of just like you, sometimes we look at people in the Bible as superhuman and the fact that they possibly or you know didn't struggle with these things. John you know, he just knew the truth, and that was the done deal. In a sentence, it's, it, it, it's just Jesus. But I'm sure he dealt with the temptations and struggles because Jesus said there's no temptation taken us but what is common to man, but God's faithful, and Jesus was tempted just like we are, yet without sin. And so if Jesus was tempted, you know John was tempted, right? You know John struggled at some point or someplace by seeing his popularity begin to decrease. But he knew the truth. And he refused to entertain the lies. And that's what we have to do. We have to stop the lives of Satan before they have a chance to begin to take hold of our mind and sow these seeds of mistrust with God. God, are you sure you know what you're doing? God, are you, are, do you have this thing really figured out? Are you in control? And we begin to question the goodness of God. But we're to rehearse the truth. John says, I've told you before, I'm going to say it again. I'm rehearsing it to you. Here's the truth. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. And we're to seek God's glory over our own glory. And John then gives us something that's, that's incredible to remember. In that, in the fact that we know our role, and even though we may be struggling, we live our role of, I must, as he's going to say in a minute, decrease, Jesus must increase. In that, we find great joy. So knowing it's not about you brings joy. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What's he talking about with this illustration about a wedding? I had the opportunity, the privilege to officiate a wedding over in Thomasville last night of a former student, and his best man was his brother. And his brother was just so proud, his younger brother, just so proud of his older brother and this great, incredible moment. And just watching him as he talked to his brother and interacted with his brother in this moment. And if you've been there with a sibling when they've been married, I mean, there's just a, such a special bond that's, that's brought between you and your, your sibling during this time. 
And I saw that taking place here. And, the, and the, just the best man, he was just stepping up to the role. Well, if we understand the cultural background of what John just said, it's really helpful to understand here. All right, so at a Jewish wedding, the bridegroom's best man, so to speak, had many duties. One of them was to arrange for the wedding. The other was to send out the invitations. But he had one very special duty, and this was a tradition that developed. He was to guard the bride's bedroom. He was to guard the bride's bedroom. He would not allow anyone else to enter into the bride's bedroom, and he only opened the door when he heard the bridegroom's voice. And so John gives that beautiful picture. Let's read it again. It makes more sense. The one who has the bride, obviously Jesus, he's the bridegroom. The friend, John says, I'm the friend, I'm the best man of the bridegroom who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy is mine, of mine is now complete. So John says, again, I've done my role and I'm full of joy because I completed the duty that God has assigned to me. Jesus, the groom, he's arrived. This whole wedding is about him. I don't need to make it about me. I'm just the best man. Do I have an important role? Absolutely. Is it critical? Yes, it's been assigned to you. You need to complete your role. And the great thing about your role is when you make it not about you and you make it about him, in that you receive incredible joy. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He feels fulfilled because he's done what God has asked him to do. Back in college, had the opportunity to play intramural football. Basically, anybody could play, so it wasn't like a big status thing or anything, but intramural football. And I was on, uh, we, we were assigned by the floors and dorms to teams. And our, the guys I was with, many of them were much better athletes than me. Many of them thought they were much better athletes than me. And so all the key skill positions, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, those guys, they wanted those positions, okay? But nobody wanted to be an offensive lineman. Nobody did, right? And, and a lot of these guys were little skinny freshmen, sophomore. They, they weren't really big. They didn't work out. And so they, they, they're, like the line was not their thing, right? So I volunteered, okay, I'll be an offensive lineman. For those of you who have no clue about football, those are the people who push and shove people at the front, right? So the skilled guys, the quicker guys can run through and score touchdowns, hopefully, right? Or protect the passer. And so I was the offensive lineman. And I'll be honest with you, like at the beginning, I, it's not really what I wanted to do, right? I wanted to have the ball. I wanted to be able to score. But I agreed to it because it was the best thing for the team. But I, I saw as I began to play, I really, really enjoyed this position. I'd never played football before. I was a soccer player back in high school. But I found great joy in the fact that the offensive line, what you're to do when you're going to run the ball, you're to open up a hole for the running back to run through. And so when you knew, when I knew I had done my job and helped open that hole so that guy could get a 15, 20-yard run, or when I could pass protect the quarterback so he could drop back and make a good throw, I felt great sense of reward, a great sense of joy because I had done what I was supposed to do. Sure, I didn't score the touchdown. I didn't throw the pass, but I did my job. That's what God has asked each of us to do. And all of us have a different role to play. And rather than be jealous of other people, God says, you find your joy 
when you fulfill the role that God has given to you. And here's what's devastating about jealousy. Here's what's devastating about envy. Again, it questions God's goodness and his wisdom. And what happens when you question someone? When you don't trust someone, what do you do? You don't go to them. You don't ask their opinion. You don't go to them about things. Same thing's true with God. If you question God, God, why not me? Why am I here? Why this situation in life? Why this marriage? If you begin to question God, then you don't run to God humbly, seeking his help, seeking his grace. And so pride says, and it, can, it, it disguises itself. Pride can come across as, I'm nothing. You know, I don't even like myself. That's pride. Pride is thinking so much about yourself all the time, just dwelling on yourself and what you want. But when we run to God, then it's not about us all of a sudden. God, I need your mercy. I need your grace to fulfill my role. I'm not running to him to give him my list of things to make my life better. I'm running to him and saying, God, I want to fulfill my role and my purpose in this life. And Jesus makes it clear what our purpose is. Scripture points to our purpose. We are, and I say this a lot, we're an ambassador. We're an ambassador for the kingdom. What's an ambassador do? The ambassador simply represents something much greater than himself. And any ambassador who begins to get his opinions, get his policies, get what he wants in front of what's best for the nation and what the nation is telling him to represent, that guy's going to be fired, all right? He's out of a job because he's not doing what he's been hired to do, which is to represent. You and I, God has called us to be ambassadors for the kingdom. And if we're going to represent something much greater than us, we must realize it's not about us, it's all about Jesus. And not just in theory, but in practice. In your relationship with your wife, with your coworker, with that guy that you interact with outside of work. In these relationships, you must see your purpose. And 1 Thessalonians 2.4 makes it very clear. You, you, you've been approved. If you're a Christian, if you've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, you have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. That's a big deal, right? To be entrusted with something. You have been entrusted with the gospel. So God says, Joe, as you go to work today, you've been entrusted with the gospel. You're my ambassador. And so we run to him for help. God, this is a much too big assignment for me. I need your grace on my life today. I need you working through me because I'm a pretty selfish person naturally. I like my way. I like to argue my opinions. I like to let people know that, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty smart dude. God, I need your grace to get out of the way so I can bring glory to you today. And we run to him for grace. And in that, he approves and he gives us the gospel and he says, take the gospel, represent me, make me known, live for me. And our name, in the end of the day, doesn't mean anything. Our name doesn't do anything powerful and our name doesn't accomplish anything great, does it? The name of Joe, every knee will bow, right? No, 
the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. No other name can anyone come to the Father except through Jesus. Jesus doesn't come through Joe. He comes through Jesus. It's not about you. John got that. His name didn't mean anything. And then the third lesson we see from John as he lovingly teaches his disciples, just don't compete with Jesus. Very clearly and straight up, he just says, he must increase, but I I must decrease. Jesus is on the way up. I'm on the way down. And John was delighted that Jesus, his influence had eclipsed his own influence. And I love this quote by Pastor John Bloom. He says, the, A mark of increasing maturity as disciples is an increasing experience of joy in Jesus' influence eclipsing our own, both internally and externally. So you want to see a mark of discipleship if it's happening in your life? Maturity happening is that you're receiving greater joy because Jesus' influence, his name, far supersedes your own. And you see that again. This is one of those areas where it just seems like you're okay and I'm okay in this. But look at the, the details of your conversations and the, just the flow of your life, and it says more about the truth of your pride and humility than does what you say you believe in your head. We must constantly preach Galatians 2.20 to ourselves. I, John, have been crucified. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And this life that I live in the body, that I get up and go to work every day and go to lunch and do my thing, this life I'm living in the body, this ordinary life, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you don't know Galatians 2.20 by heart, you need to memorize that one. And you need to say it to yourself a lot because it doesn't come natural to die to yourself and let Jesus live through you. So very simply and very straightforward, our head application today is this. Pride doesn't show up in the mirror. Pride doesn't show up in the mirror. If you can remember one thing that will help you trigger these other things, it's this. Pride doesn't show up in the mirror. And so you can look in it, and on your own, you can say, don't see much pride. I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty good. doesn't show up. So that's where our heart comes in. We have to run to God for grace and for help. The deceit of pride keeps you from running to God for the help that only he can give you. And pride is so destructive because it stops you from humbly admitting the depths of your unrighteousness and the impossibility of doing anything about it by yourself. Will you run to God for help? Will you pray, even as I'm talking right now, will you begin to pray in your head, God, expose my pride. God, I want it to be about you. I like myself a lot, or I don't like myself a lot, but I want to get out of the way so it can be about Jesus. And that's the name I want to live for. And then hands, embrace your God-given role. You're a humble ambassador for the kingdom. That's your role. That's my role. I'm an ambassador for the kingdom. And you may look at me and say, Pastor John, it's easy for you 
to see yourself as an ambassador. Here you are speaking for God. I had somebody last night tell me at the wedding, he was like, hey, will you pray about this? Because I think you probably have a better line to God than I do. Uh, no, all right? Reformation, I should have said that, right? Reformation, we, we dealt with that like 500 years ago, right? It's not true. Priesthood of the believer. You have a direct line to God. Will you talk to him? Will you admit humbly, I want to be your ambassador? Regardless of where I'm at, regardless of what I'm doing, and I want to keep that gospel in the forefront of my mind. And remember Jesus' words. He says, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so everyone will see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven, which is your purpose, right? Glorify God, and in that, you enjoy him forever. Glorify God, not about me, and that's where I find great joy. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for those in here who are really living life pretty much for themselves, and they don't even know where to start to change that. God, I pray that you'll help them to see they start with you and admitting what they don't see, admitting the deceit of sin, the deceptiveness of Satan, and the fact that pride just doesn't show up in the mirror. And God, I pray that you will begin to just do your work in their lives, in their hearts. God, I pray for myself as well. It's so easy to take even ministry and the good things we do and turn it around to be about me, about ego, about self. And God, I pray that you'll teach me and teach each one of us in here how to live humbly for you. God, thank you for Jesus, and thank you that we can see from John's teaching and example to his disciples that we can't get caught up in envy and jealousy, but we must keep our focus upon you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.